welcome to the podcast of Of Course They Make Me Crazy. It's about crazy family stories. We all have one, right? More importantly, it's for those of you living with someone who suffers with a mental illness. You can start to feel lost in their world. Now, I get it. I grew up with a bipolar mom addicted to pain pills. Hoping the stories shared here will help you through difficult days. It's not all serious. We laugh and joke, too. If you have little ones around, pop in your headphones. Adults only, please. Thank you so much for joining us on Of Course They Make Me Crazy, the podcast. I'm April. And so we got a doozy today. Once an offender, always an offender. Is that really true? Dr. Jeffrey Frieden, he is joining me today to, to dive deeper into this. So uh, Dr. Frieden, tell me a little bit more about your work. I know that you work with, uh, with attorneys um, in, in regards to all this, and you have been for what, like 20 years, is that right? Right, that's right, April. I've uh, been doing this for about 20 something years now. I work mostly with uh, attorneys and I work with the state and I work with the federal government. My job in particular is to evaluate a person's risk for a new offense. And for persons that have been convicted of a sex offense is to provide treatment. All right, and so, I was reading today, and we talked a little bit about this, um, and I don't know exactly where I got this from, but it was saying that uh, sex offenders, and I don't, you don't refer to them as that, and we'll get a little bit in, into that, but um, that they offend like 300 times before they are seen in court as a first-time offender. What are your thoughts on that one? Uh, that's that's a, a large number, and I work mostly in, in the scientific end of it, the data behind it. But yes, it's, it's true that most offenders have other victims before they're caught. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, they'll have more and more victims. And then what we were saying before, I used to work with victims initially when I got into this field 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I found from that point that I was seeing a lot of victims and I've seen offenders have multiple victims. And that's when I left the victim treatment field and went into work with offenders to try and put a stop to that. Interesting. So, you know, this podcast it focuses on uh, people living with people with a mental illness or struggles or because when we live with them or we love them, we also have to deal with the, the sometimes the chaos that they cause in, in our lives. And it's just a trickle effect around for everyone, really. So when um, a mom or, you know, father or, you know, maybe a grandma, a family member, when, when they are struggling with something, maybe their son or, you know, daughter, who knows, has been an offender, husband, you know, grandfather, um, grandmas, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to leave anybody out. And, and they want to bring them back into the home. Some of them probably think to themselves, like, if I just love them, if I just forgive them, um, if I just show them that, you know, I'm here to support them, they'll reform. Right. What, are, what are, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, April, let me tell you some of the data behind this. And when I say data, we have literally hundreds of studies about offenders so we can understand them and so we can make determinations of a risk rate if they're a risk. So the data shows that 
85% of persons convicted of a sex offense, once caught, never offend again, no matter what we do. Jail treatment. So only 15% will reoffend. So the question we have to understand or have to ask ourselves as an evaluator is how do I know you're in the 15% or the 85%? And so we have to look at risk rates. And what we're seeing now, is, let me back up for a second, the common misconception is once an offender, always offender. And you hear that a lot. You hear it not just with people talking to each other, but you hear it in legislative issues. The Supreme Court actually has had two rulings on what we call involuntary commitments. What that means is if you've got a sex offense and that particular state, there are 14 states that have this involuntary commitment, if they feel you're still going to reoffend, that once you flatten your time, you still go back into jail past your time. Okay. And the Supreme Court based this on erroneous information from 25 years ago that once an offender, always offender. And what we're seeing now is we see a lot of brain scan studies, PET scans, and we use those studies at first to see where the brain activates and what's causing things to activate in feelings. So in heterosexual love, uh, man and woman love, we see it light up in a certain part of the brain. We know that activates it. We see the same thing in homosexual love with man-man or girl-girl, meaning that it's a biological product. It's not a choice. You've heard that before. Everything's a choice. It's not a choice. And what we're seeing now in persons that have pedophilic attractions or attraction to children, we see the same thing. In fact, it's so much ingrained now where we see the biology that there's actually a group of people, uh, an association of persons that righteous offenders they call they don't offend but they're attracted to children they've got a problem they realize they're attracted to children they don't act out on it because they know it's wrong but there's biology behind it so we see more and more about biology uh in other words i have an attraction now acting out on it is a completely different story okay? right you, you still make a choice on that so we see, we talk about mental illness, which is interesting. It, it, it's, it's still relatively new, but science is science. And you see a lot uh, still of the, of the old time uh, therapists or old time studies, even the American Psychological Association until recently had a tough time with that. So they would not recognize until recently that the brain scan study. So we see a lot of that where it's biology. It's like any other mental illness. It's, if you would call it mental illness, it's, it's biology root-based. Interesting. And so when you're, when you were working with the, the families in, in trying to, to deal with what they have to deal with when one of their loved ones has either been offended or one of their loved ones is an offender, um, what were some of the, the big struggles for them and how did they get around and, and, and return to, I guess, a healthy lifestyle for themselves? Mm -hmm. Uh, returning to a healthy lifestyle is, is obviously difficult, especially if the victim's inside. So let me just give you some more statistics behind all this. 96% um, of persons that have been victimized know the offender. This is not a case where someone goes behind a fence and grabs somebody, even though those cases exist. Yeah. So 96% of the people that have been victimized know the person that's doing it, whether it's a family member or not. Interestingly, the data shows that if a family member is the person being offended on, you have a lower rate of reoffending than if I had a stranger. So if I was an offender and I had a stranger, my rate would be higher to reoffend. So actually, it makes it safer. So the question becomes to reunification, 
the, the, it's there's several facets in that. First, everybody's got to make some choices. Do they want to re, do they want to reunify? Okay, and it becomes a problem because if I'm a the man and men tend to be the predominant uh, gender in this offense, mm -hmm. a lot of times they're the main breadwinner. So if they're out incarcerated, or if they're not coming back to the home, how does the family survive financially? So that's one thing we have to look at. The second thing we look at is the victim. Uh, the biggest problem with being a victim is the loss of power. Uh, it's been taken away from them. So the victim's got to decide if they want to do that. And then it becomes another dynamic because if you got a child who's the victim and mom wants to back in the house, and there's a lot of dynamics there. So the, what we found is the the of a protocol of entering back a reunification into a home is treatment, sex offender treatment for men. What we see is a genuine reduction of 15% reoffend. We get that number all the way down to 4%. If they, if they successfully complete sex offender treatment, we, it's been, that's literally again, hundreds of studies. That's just not me talking. We have literally hundreds of studies of, of offenders. So if we can put the person back into treatment, Mm -hmm. understand why the offended to start off with what led them to make the choices that they made and the person becomes aware of those choices they become safer they become their own guardians of their own bad choices yeah and then it makes it easier for the family to accept them uh back into the household assuming the family wants them back do you see that a lot of times the family does want them back or do you see that they you know wish them the best and, and still reach out to them, but, you know, live separately. Generally speaking, when a person offends, they don't have a healthy relationship to start off with. Yeah. So while that person might be married to somebody, it's probably not a healthy relationship to start off with. Yeah. So do they want them back? Well, they probably, maybe they think about getting divorced anyway, and this yeah. just makes it easier. Okay. The, what we want people is to make choices that makes them happy and choices that they want to live with. We don't want people to make choices out of force. In other words, I've got to take him back because I need the financial income or he needs to come back because he didn't know how to meet other people. Those are wrong reasons for going back together. And those are reasons also that lead you to reoffend. And those are, you want to establish a healthy relationship. So you got to, it's almost like any other illness. You've got to treat the mental illness first or the issue first before you re-enter and back into uh, a family for a healthy relationship. Uh, and you were saying you don't, you don't necessarily, you don't call them offenders. What is your, what is your uh, professional description? Well, a person that's got a sex offense conviction has got a, in addition to any kind of criminal penalties or whatever penalties they have, is a stigma. Okay? That's allegedly the worst of the worst. Yeah. If you go into prison, in fact, the prisons now are built with separate pods or even separate buildings for persons convicted of sex offenses because they're considered a vulnerable population. Even though everybody in prison is a criminal to start off with, <laughs> they've, they've decided that you're a worse criminal, which that's a whole nother thinking in there. But if I come, if I'm a, an offender and I come out of my, if I have been in prison, I come out, I go into treatment, I'm successful, I'm, I'm safer. I learned I don't put myself in high risk situations. I'm no longer drinking. I don't put myself with other kids. I don't put my, I, I watch myself. I still have to go to work. 
And if you go to work, there's always that question, do you have a felony and what is it? Or I've got work restrictions or living restrictions. Maybe the family will take me back in and I'm treated and I'm ready to go. But all of a sudden I've got a thousand foot rule or a 2000 foot rule. We got a place like Florida has got a 3000 foot rule where literally people in Florida, their address is under a bridge. They group them under bridges because that's 3000 feet away from a school or a church. Really? So, yeah. There's, there's, they get, they get their mail delivered under a bridge. There's multiple places like that in Florida because they can't live within the city. So if I've got a family, I want to raise them and go to school. Well, I can't be within, well, in Tennessee where I'm at, it's a thousand foot rule, but in Florida, it's a three thousand foot rule. Well, how's your kid going to walk to school? Okay, yeah. so another, right. So what this becomes a problem is now that I've got this person not reoffending and I've got this family reunited Well, now I've got these stigmas and these laws that prevent people from providing for their family, for working, for doing whatever they're doing in there. And that's another story. You know, there's a lot of our laws are based on, I say giving people the business. It's not really treating them. We use GPS, for example, when we want to know where they're at. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, if I, the expression we use is a GPS was invented for cows so I could find them in the, in the field. Well, I might know where my cow is, but I don't know what he's doing out there. So right. I might be right. So that doesn't work. And that's been shown not to work, but we still do it. It makes everybody feel better. We have the thousand foot rule. For some reason, we think persons with a sex offense conviction can't walk a thousand and two feet. For some reason, if, if I'm a criminal, I'm going to break the law. I'm going to, people still rob banks. People still take advantage of government programs. People still take advantage of each other. The laws don't make people behave. Okay, people have to behave on their on themselves. So GPS, the research shows, doesn't work. Uh, the thousand foot rule doesn't work. The only thing that really works, and there's two things that seem that we we see data is treatment. Yeah. Uh, up to six months in jail has an impact. After six months, it doesn't make a difference. They, the reoffense rate is the same. So we see that makes a difference. Um, understanding and empathy is uh, not a risk factor, but understanding what they did wrong, learning how to behave in, in, in sex offense treatment is probably the single biggest factor. That's why a lot of states require sex offender treatment after conviction. You can rob a bank, but there's no treatment for that. But if you commit a sex offense, we're going to provide treatment because we show it does work mm -hmm. and for those different things. Well, that's good. I mean, I mean, personally, I don't know if I had somebody because I, I've never been in that situation, you know, but I just well, see, don't you, know. That, that's, if I can interrupt you, you don't know yeah. if you've been in that situation. So the question courts will ask us if, as they decide probation, what's the probability of this person to reoffend? And we classify them as low, medium, high. But the truth of the matter is no one has a zero risk. The judge, me, everybody has some risk because we haven't found everybody yet. There are people offending right now. We don't know who they are, so we can't include them. So if we don't know, that means we have to spread that risk around. That's a statistical anomaly. So in other words, no one, there's no such thing as a low risk. And so the question is, well, how do you know who is a risk? You know, and that's the question of, you know, how to protect my children. And it's, it's really, so once caught, 85% don't do it again. You probably don't have to worry that much about persons that have been convicted or been caught, which you have to worry about the person that hasn't been caught yet whether it's a family yeah. relative that babysits and I'm not naming names. I'm just using examples. Examples, yeah. yeah choir teachers, coaches, look at the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts, have yeah. closed, they're bankrupt now yeah. because of all that's been going on. And the old adage is, you know, if I, 
is, is where are you placing your kids? Or do they know how to handle people? And I've been around enough people that are offenders, and I know that they that all the, the tricks that we're told about talking to strangers doesn't work. These guys know if they want how it goes, how to, how to handle these things. So that's, we start classifying offenders as opportunistic versus predatory. You know, we try and categorize everybody to see what their risk rates are. So the question becomes is you're worried about the person that's been identified when you really need to worry about is the person that has not yet been identified and 96% of the people know them already. Okay. So, you know, the person you think you're trusting, that could be one of them. Yeah. How do you know? I mean, is there ever any clues to give you an indication of, you know, if somebody's has a little, I don't know, spit an image or, you know, like, oh, I think he's, he could be a, you know, an, an offender or he gives me the creepy yeah. or, you know, yeah, yeah. how do you know? I mean, can you, is, are there some typical things that you can tell us that maybe would, um, there is no clue, other, especially when you're dealing with a sex offense, and let me get a little more data behind that. Now, there's people with the sex offender, first thing you think of is an adult and a child, okay? But there's other types of offenders that are convicted. A uh, person with a rape conviction, uh, we see a lot of you know, date rape, people are drinking, they're, they're all over 18, but they're all making bad choices, and those are also considered sex offenders. So when that's the problem with the stigma, if you say a person's a sex offender, the first thing you think is he likes six-year-old boys. Yeah, okay. that's what I totally think. Right, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and so if I've, if I've been out and I made a bad choice and I'm drinking with a young lady and, and I make a bad choice and I take advantage of her while she's drinking or whatever, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this time, I'm getting conviction, but am I really, do you have to worry about me running a six-year-old kid? The research says no. That's not my choice. My choice is the other way around. Yeah. So that's why we no one has a zero risk. We don't know who everybody is yet. And the data also shows if you meet somebody in the field as a clinician or something and says, oh, that guy looks like a sex offender, the research says you have 50-50 chance of being right. In other words, it's chance. And mm -hmm. we use data. We use a lot of tools and instruments and testing to determine what a person's predilection is, to determine a person's desires, any deviant behavior, deviant attractions, those type of things. And then once again, deviant attractions are not a problem. If I like, I don't know what your audience is here, so I don't know how far I can go here. <laughs> Over here, find out what Jeffrey likes. <laughs> right, but if I am into bondage, you know, I will be tied right. up, and right. we're two consenting adults, and we have code words, and we are comfortable with each other, that's fine. Yeah. The problem is, though, if I'm kidnapping people and I'm still doing this, now I got a problem because I've now you know I've crossed the line. I'm willing to act out on that behavior. Mm -hmm. So just having a deviant attraction doesn't make you a pedophile. What makes you a pedophile is pedophilic attraction, biologically, why I'm attracted to that person and acting out on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. So every time if you walk in your kid, it's, oh, what a cute little kid. <laughs> if you're in my field, the first thing you think is, why are you saying that? <laughs> we say that all the time. You know, so, yeah. right. so the, you know, how to protect your children is a whole other episode, I guess. You know? yeah, but we're really. dealing, dealing with, these, with the persons that are convicted of offenses, it goes across race, creed, color, national origin, income levels. Is go, you see with the Epstein case, he's, he's hanging out with the big people, and he's in the, so it, it, there is no type or typical yeah. person. Okay, so but the, what we find is they have multiple offenders. If you look like I use Jeffrey Epstein just as an example right now, is that 
he was a convicted sex offender when he got caught the second time. Yeah. He, already, he was already on the registry. So the yeah. registry doesn't work either. And that's uh, the third thing I was going to tell you about the GPS, the distance. The registry doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. Just because you're on the registry doesn't make you not do anything. Absolutely. But it, but it does put a stigma on you. If you're on the registry and everybody can see it, okay, well, do I want to hire you to you know, work and drive my truck or something like that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Based on the stigma. So just like mental health, uh, psych, uh, sex offender behavior, uh, we see a lot of it in biology. And just like other mental health issues, it has a stigma behind it. People look at it and say, you've got stigma. And then the family, how they live with it, how they accept it, and how other people accept it is something we're still working on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just with the Epstein case, you know, those girls are all, you know, much, much older, and they're just, they still have not been able to heal from from that happening. And yeah. you see the Jeffrey Epstein case also, you have, a, you have female offenders there also, which people think they're surprised by, it, but we've got prisons for just female offenders, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you get to trafficking and things like that of, of humans that you see a lot of females that are into this, not a lot, but you see a, a growing number of females that are convicted of these sex offenses also, and they're also on the registry and they're all- There is so much more that we could cover with Dr. Jeffrey Frieden. Don't worry, he'll be back on soon. But in the meantime, if you have any questions for him, you can contact him at drjeffreyfrieden.com. I'll have his website in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us on Of Course They Make Me Crazy. And if you have a story you'd like to share, you can email at of course they make me crazy at gmail.com.